Hello and welcome to another Counterfire podcast. This week I'm very pleased to have with me Kate Connolly, a Counterfire member and author of the fantastic biography of Sylvia Pankhurst, suffragette, socialist, scourge of empire. And it's Sylvia Pankhurst we're going to be discussing today. Hello Kate, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Good, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's just dive straight in. Let's have a little bit of historical context to get us going. Um, Sylvia was born in 1882. What was going on? Well, Sylvia Pankhurst was born in 1882 in Manchester. Um, and this city in the 19th century really was emblematic of 19th century capitalism. Uh, it was even called Cottonopolis. This was the, the home of the big cotton factories um, and textile production. And as such, it was um, a city where there were huge conflicts uh, between the people um, who were suffering that level of exploitation and those that owned those those big factories. And, um, and probably some of our listeners will have seen the film Peterloo um, about that city in 1819 and about those kinds of conflicts. So this really informs um, the kind of background to Sylvia Pankhurst's life. She is told stories about all of these amazing struggles. Her um, great-grandfather was at Peterloo um, himself and and fled the, the soldiers who were, were attacking people with, with sabres. Um, and on her father's side um his his grandfather was was involved in the chartist movement um so this this movement for political reform for working class people um to try and transform parliament and make it something that could represent um people like those that were working in those those cotton mills in manchester so she's absolutely um imbued with with that that history um and the inspiration of all of those kind of struggles and in the 19th century in the course of that century, Manchester really becomes the city of 19th century liberalism. And that was certainly Sylvia Pankhurst's own father, uh, Dr. Richard Pankhurst, identified with the Liberal Party. Um, he was from a non-conformist background. And that's that's the, the party and the political milieu in which he's involved with. And what's interesting about the period in which Sylvia is born um, is that sections of the Liberal Party start to become more radical and want to make more radical demands and and to to take things in in a different direction and so in the the period of her upbringing those are the kind of campaigns that start to depart from those older movements that her parents become very much involved with give us a bit of a background to the struggle for women's suffrage as well in that in that climate um well the way the vote was granted in britain was always on a property basis um and with the passing of the 1832 reform act um, this is when women become excluded for the first time, uh, explicitly in law. Um, so that's remembered in, in British history, and it's, it's still taught this way in very many schools. That's still called the Great Reform Act, but it was the first act um, that explicitly stops women from voting and also imposes um, a, a, a property qualification. Can I just ask mm. there, though, but had any women voted before? Just yeah, they had. Um, they really had. That's yeah, so there was a kind of... Uh, there were still property qualifications, so most women would didn't have, have that have kind been, of property. Sure, um, yeah, hardly any, but one or two. Yeah, but one or two had, and this was the basis of some of the legal challenges in the 19th century to try and allow 
some women to vote and Sylvia's father was a barrister he was he was legally trained and he was one of the people who tried to use that argument um to try and and say this there was precedent for this and therefore I mean uh, that's the strain that runs through most of a lot of British radical history there's there's some mad precedent from way back and uh (laughs) but but that's a real one no um okay sorry I, I, I I jumped in there but yes okay so the Great Reform Act explicitly makes this about male suffrage yeah what happens uh, about next a, a male and very elite suffrage mm-hmm. and then there are struggles throughout the 19th century to broaden that franchise um, and it is broadened although by the by the period that we're talking about um, from from Sylvia's birth onwards there are still many men who are excluded from that franchise on the basis that they're working class and they don't own enough property um, but women are excluded altogether and this raises debates about how women should be campaigning for that right Um, because there are many women who felt that injustice but the question arises do you campaign for um, votes for women on the same terms as men um, or do you argue for votes for all men and women Um, and this this is going to be a debate that divides the franchise movement in the 19th century but particularly in the 20th century and and that is I presume that is a dividing line that goes along liberal and, and radical lines yeah, very much so. Although there there were socialists who were um, persuaded to campaign primarily for women's suffrage on the basis that uh, it was important to demand equality on on a matter of principle, um, and a lot of people were were arguing um, within the Labour Party, for example, that um, a, a, you know a, a votes for women bill would enfranchise some working class women, and therefore it was worth fighting for. But mm. it it does kind of divide on those lines but it, it's messy and it's complicated and it's contradictory mm-hmm. um, and it's made more contradictory and messy by the fact that um, there are some people that are principally committed to what was called adult suffrage so a vote for everybody and then there were some people who were expected uh, kind of suspected of hiding a misogyny uh, behind supporting adult suffrage um, in, instead of of talking about women's suffrage, so these are these are messy and complicated debates where it was difficult for people to decide where the dividing lines should be. Mm. Uh, but I think it it kind of becomes more clear to a lot of activists, not least Sylvia Pankhurst herself, in the course of that struggle about where it takes people to focus on on the same terms as men. Okay, well, look, give us. Let's get, let's keep zooming in then. So, so let's talk about the famous Pankhurst women. Maybe give us a little bit of their story and maybe we can pick up a bit more of the story of the struggle for women's suffrage as we go. There's Richard Pankhurst, uh, who's Sylvia's father, um, and he dies in 1898 before um, the emergence of the militant suffragette movement in the 20th century, uh, which the women in his family will lead. Um, and then there's his wife, Emmeline Pankhurst, so Sylvia's mother. She has uh, five children. Um, one of those those children dies in infancy, um, and a younger brother, um, Harry Pankhurst, dies in in the course of the suffrage struggle. Dies in 1910 as a young man. Uh, so that leaves us with the the three daughters who will be um, pivotal figures really in the militant suffragette 
campaign in the early 20th century. So there's Christabel Pankhurst, who's the oldest Pankhurst sister. Um, there's Sylvia, um, who's the, the middle one. Uh, and there's Adela Pankhurst, who is the younger sister. You've talked about how the Pankhurst have kind of got this, this long kind of tradition in their family of protest, of Peterloo, and and so on. And, um, and it's not just the women, to begin with, who support female suffrage. Is there a moment in their kind of history that mobilises them on, on this particular issue? Yeah, it's it's interesting because the three Pankhurst daughters were not treated the way many young middle-class girls would have been treated. Um, so they were allowed to read whatever they wanted um, and they were given a very thorough political education by their parents um, who for much of their, their young lives uh, refused to send them to school and uh, instead had them attend the kind of big political soirees and meetings that they were holding in their house. So Sylvia was always interested in politics and wanted to be a part of that and always writing about the the people that she was meeting and and um, they you know they set up their own um, little newspaper as children to report on their parents meetings on the question of suffrage um, and it's it's Sylvia who takes that most seriously um, and and takes ownership of that legacy most seriously so what changes though uh, and what turns this into um, an issue that becomes something they are going to campaign over. Um, there's a particular incident, I suppose, that galvanises the, the Pankhurst women, and it's related to the legacy of their father. Um, so after Richard Pankhurst dies, the local independent Labour Party, um, both of her parents were very much involved in the very early independent Labour Party and, and that break away from the Liberal Party to form a kind of early socialist movement in this country. Uh, they wanted to erect a hall in his honour called Pankhurst Hall um, near Manchester. And this was something that was enormously important, of course, to the Pankhurst women. And Sylvia was a young art student at the time, a very talented artist and very talented at painting murals in particular. And she'd been asked to decorate this hall in honour of her father. And this was... Um, a commission that she took very, very seriously. She adored her father um, and was inspired throughout her life by his political legacy. Um, so she decorated this hall with quotes from his great heroes, Shelley and, and so on and so forth. And uh, just before the opening of the hall, they found out that the independent Labour Party branch that were going to use that hall weren't going to admit women as members. And so this is a huge slap in the face um, for them, but also for everything that their father stood for and that he believed in. He was a big advocate of women's rights. So this really inspires uh, Sylvia's mother and, and partly her older sister Christabel to set up their own organisation that will be linked to the socialist and labour movements, but will be separate from it and will campaign for votes for women on a different basis from what's been seen before. That's fascinating. Um, I didn't know about her artistic background. Perhaps mm. it's a rather mundane question, but what happened to the mural? There are, you can see some of the designs, they, they still exist. And Pankhurst Hall went through a number of kind of changes, ended up as a, as a cinema, uh, which I believe burnt down in the, either the 1970s or 1980s. So um, I don't know if the murals were, were still there in the 1970s and 80s. It would be fascinating to know. But, um, 
Well, yes. Um, so what's the organisation called that they set up? So they set up the Women's Social and Political Union, um, or WSPU for short, in October 1903. And that's set up in the Pankhurst's family home uh, in Nelson Street in Manchester. And that's still somewhere that you can go and visit. It's still a museum. Um, it's called the Pankhurst Centre. Um, and it's also a centre for women as well. Also offers support services for women today, which is, which is really nice. Um, and a very important legacy um, of of that name um, and and of that place so they they established this new group in 1903 and initially what's different about this group from previous groups that have been campaigning and and indeed many of the current organizations um, is that really throughout the 19th century and the very beginning of the 20th century typically campaigns for um, women's suffrage have been led by women that were um, allied either with the Conservative Party or with the Liberal Party. And this this WSPU is different because it attracts women who are either like the Pankhursts, themselves involved in the labour and socialist movements, or working class women um, up in the northwest of the country. This was, um, as, I, as I've said, where, where the big cotton factories were, the textile industry was. And that's where you get... Um, in that period, the most dense union organisation of women. Um, so women are joining textile trade unions um, to, to better their pay and conditions. And so it's women like that that are, that are becoming involved, um, women who are involved in, in sort of radical labour struggles and particularly in that period, the unemployment campaign. The campaign for women's suffrage in the 19th century is there's a multiplicity of groups and it's quite complicated. There are lots of splits, there are lots of arguments about tactics, about what they're actually campaigning for and who they're campaigning for. Often historians will date the start of a kind of consistent campaign for women's suffrage from 1865. And this is really done in conjunction with a, a kind of big fi figure of uh, British liberalism, a man called John Stuart Mill who was a member of parliament. Um, now, this isn't the first time by any means that uh, that women's suffrage has been mentioned in the House of Commons. Um, and in fact, to kind of link us back to one of our sort of earliest themes, uh, one of the first mentions comes from Henry Hunt, uh, that speaker at the Peterloo Massacre. Um, he's he's uh, one of the sort of first MPs to, to argue for, for women's suffrage. And this is um, when Henry Hunt does it, when John Stuart Mill does it, in 1865, um, you you get politicians being absolutely ridiculed in in the House of Commons. The mention of the word "woman" uh, is met by just people laughing and and making crude jokes, um, which tells us a lot about the the class of parliamentarians, really. Um, and that that early struggle is um, is shaped by women around the country organising huge petitions. So kind of inspired by, in some ways, the tactics of the Chartist movement, uh, where they were getting lots of women to sign these petitions to say how much they wanted the vote and presenting those before Parliament to show that this was a very popular demand. And as I said, this is there are lots of different organisations. There are lots of arguments about who they're campaigning for. Uh, one argument the Pankhurst family themselves become involved with in the 1880s is an argument over whether they should campaign for um, only single women to get the right to vote or um, whether they should be campaigning for married and single women. And this was because of a, a kind of 
a quirk in British law called coverture, which essentially denied married women of, of all of their rights. Um, so uh, again, you've got this question about how many women are you campaigning for? How much do you confront um, the establishment? Do you try and win a small reform um, or do you try and win something much wider? And in that period, the Pankhurst family are in the forefront of campaigning for something much, much wider and saying, no, we can't throw married women under a bus. Um, if you like, and they very much identify themselves as part of a, a radical wing. Um, and in this, they compare themselves. There's always been very interesting links between the campaign for women's political emancipation um, and an identification with what's going on in the, in the United States in terms of the anti-slavery movement. And they identify themselves in campaigning for not just single women, but but trying to kind of smash this notion of coverture in British law. They identify themselves with the ardent abolitionists in America. Um, and they have some American speakers at their conferences who draw those same links. And what they're saying is, we're the more radical campaigners who actually force significant reform, and that other people are cozying up to um, power and are complicit with, with allowing those kind of inequalities to persist and that informs what the Pankhursts will do later on in the in the 20th century so they will see these previous campaigns which are very much focused on petitioning on lobbying MPs on trying to persuade um, the parliamentarians to take this issue seriously they look at that and they think well this has been a continuous campaign at least since 1865 there needs to be a radical breach um, and they think that needs to happen organisationally. What happens in 1897 is you get a lot of those different groups around the country all becoming a part of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies and this tries to be a kind of federated umbrella group and it's led by a woman called Millicent Garrett Fawcett um, from a, a quite a sort of famous family, uh, lots of reforming women in it. Um, she is married to a Liberal cabinet minister, which tells us quite a lot about her politics and involves at the top levels uh, women who, who are involved with, with Liberal politics or with Conservative politics. The Pankhurst family uh, really see this movement which they will describe as constitutionalist um, and will later be described by historians as the suffragists um, as a kind of peaceful campaigning organisation that, that focuses on um, peacefully asking for the vote. And what the Pankhurst family feel by 1903 is that there's a need for a change in tactics, that they need to become much more confrontational um, and, and start using the tactics of the early labour movement, the early socialist movement in this country and start to use tactics like direct action and civil disobedience to draw attention to their cause. In a way they feel that women have been far too patient and far too ladylike for far too long and that those tactics will inevitably, uh, tactics of, of just peacefully asking will always be unsuccessful. When I think of Sylvia Pankhurst, I think of Sylvia Pankhurst as someone who's very different from the other Pankhursts. Um, and in a sense, what we're getting actually is a, a picture of how the Pankhursts as a whole are very different from the mainstream of the female suffrage movement. Um, so talk us through how those changes 
emerge or those differences emerge between the Pankhursts themselves? Yeah, so what happens is from around about 1905, the Women's Social and Political Union, the Pankhursts organisation, which will become dubbed the militant suffragettes to distinguish them from the constitutionalist suffragists, uh, they're they're using these radical tactics. also, you know, street protests as well. Really, the, there's a debate in the movement about how they can be successful. They're united in their agreement that militant tactics are going to be useful um, and that they need to adopt street protests. Where the divisions emerge is really over the kinds of women they want to get involved in the campaign. So initially, this is a campaign that very much appeals to working class women. And those are the first members of the organisation, both up in Manchester, where they first establish, and then down in London. Um, the first London branch was was actually called the Unemployed Women of South West Ham, uh, which really tells you about where they're located and the campaigning issues they wanted to take up. What starts to happen is that Christabel Pankhurst really makes an argument um, that those kind of women have become superfluous to the campaign. And in fact, what's, what she argues is needed is more elite women to become involved. This is essentially a a very elitist argument that Christabel Pankhurst makes, which says that working class women are really too poor to be involved. They don't have the kind of time or resources to be activists. The press don't care um, if a working class woman goes to prison, whereas if it's somebody with a title or somebody well known who will be wealthy, then the press care and there's a big splash about it. Um, And so really what she argues is that this needs to be a campaign dominated by more educated or more formally educated uh, and more elite women and that that's going to be the way of winning and that working class women um, should be marginalised from the campaign. This is the faction of the the women's suffrage movement which is campaigning for wider reforms uh, for more women to have the vote than others and yet this is a kind of a break not on Mm -hmm. those key demands this is an argument about who can be front and center of the campaigns themselves that's where it starts and i think this this is a very interesting thing for for us as campaigners to think about about what do you do when you don't immediately win your demand what do you do after you've mobilized a huge mass demonstration and the government still won't listen to you what direction do you go in and some people take a very pessimistic approach, um, I would say, and I think Christabel Pankhurst's response comes out of a sort of pessimism about what can be achieved and who can achieve it. And she therefore departs from this vision of it being a mass campaign, a mass collective campaign, and starts to rely on smaller and more elite groups of women. But what then accompanies that is a change in the politics of the campaign. Um, So as the campaign becomes increasingly led by more elite women, the links with the labour movement are deliberately and consciously broken. They become very, very critical and very hostile to the Labour Party um, and and socialist groups and ideas in general. And also they start to see other movements against oppression um, and for political emancipation, not as their allies, but as their rivals. And so particularly campaigns for freedom in Ireland from the British Empire come to be seen by figures like Christabel Pankhurst as an inconvenience um, and taking up the space that, that should be afforded to the women's suffrage campaign. So the campaign becomes much more narrow, uh, much more politically conservative and much more exclusionary. And that's what Sylvia 
Julia Pankhurst absolutely objects to with, with every fibre of her being. So Christabel is, makes these arguments and and they have traction. She's persuading that organisation. Mm. These, to- yeah, these resonate in the campaign. And I think it's important that these arguments are made in the context of a Britain that is a huge empire. These are in many ways quite imperialist notions about some people being stronger and more intelligent and more elite than other people. And these resonate and it's it's phrased in a uh, a language of assisting others. It's it's always phrased as, you know, elite women are cast as the stronger and they will do things on behalf of their poorer sisters. And that's how it's how it's phrased and that's very persuasive um, to a, a lot of the campaigners who will go along with that. And that's typical of uh, many Liberals today, of course, yes. isn't it? It's doing some good for those in more need. So at this point, does the Pankhurst organisation move closer then to those other already existing organisations, to the campaigns of people like Millicent Fawcett and so on? Ironically, no. What, what happens is you get an increase in the kind of tactical radicalism which women like Millicent Fawcett really feel is damaging the campaign they feel that it's um, making the case for politicians that women shouldn't have the vote because look how irresponsibly they behave so what happens is the campaign relies upon a smaller and smaller group of women they become tactically far more radical and part of that is a response to states repression um they are being attacked on the streets um by the police the prison sentences uh, are becoming far longer they're not treated as political prisoners so they adopt the hunger strike the authorities respond by force feeding the women so the stakes become raised incredibly high and this is one of sylvia pankhurst's concerns that this is an unsustainable campaign so in a way they're still they're not really able to construct any sort of relationships with the constitutionalists they're quite out there on their own but what they're saying politically becomes increasingly reactionary what happens with the constitutionalists um certainly in the Uh, in the period just before the outbreak of the First World War is actually a growing alliance with the Labour movement. And so in a really weird way, you get the constitutionalist suffragists who started out with big ties with the the Liberals and the Conservatives, seeing that maybe the Labour Party is going to be the only political party that will really take these demands seriously and, and campaign democratically for this issue. And the suffragettes who started out with the Labour Party um, really um, espousing a much, much more reactionary politics. Rather than Sylvia being out there on her own all along as the lefty, you've got Christabel and others making this lurch rightwards. But Sylvia does go left as well. So that break becomes even wider. Let's really focus now on Sylvia herself. Let's talk about her move leftwards and the rest of her political career and and indeed her life. What Sylvia Pankhurst feels is that the militant suffragette movement needs to move in a completely different direction. Uh, She's very, very concerned with the move towards elitism and completely rejects that. Um, She thinks it's an unsustainable strategy. But also this trajectory is taking place at a time when 
far from proving themselves to be the weakest people in society, working class people were proving the strength that they had. Um, from 1910 to 1914, in this country, there was the outbreak of what's now called the Great Unrest, when working people in all different kinds of industries went on strike. Better pay, better conditions. Um, and very often this, this involved workers who'd been written off as unable to organise themselves, uh, essentially a reproduction of that elitist language, not educated enough, you know, without the resources, so on and so forth. And amongst those who were most written off were working class women. And there were a series of very significant strikes, Cradley Heath in, in the black country, women chain makers in 1910 and 1911 on the docks in South London. Women standing together and, and going on strike, very often winning better pay and conditions. And what this shows, I think, in this period is that far from being the weakest people in society, working class people were showing that when they combined together, collectively, they could be incredibly strong and could force the government um, to change direction. And this is a, a period of intense class conflict um, that they're operating in. And Sylvia Pankhurst thinks that the women's movement needs to ally with these kind of campaigns and would benefit from doing so. But it's, it's more than that, I think. Um, she sees that they face the same enemy. Um, it's the same government and indeed the same Home Secretary, uh, one Winston Churchill, who will send troops uh, to go and attack people that dared to go on strike in South Wales was the same Home Secretary that sent the orders out to police to go out and attack women right outside Parliament. Very, very brutal attacks, sexual assaults on a huge scale. So they face the same enemy, but I also think she sees that they share the same interest in creating a more democratic society and that women shared that interest with working class people about having power over their own lives. Where is she getting this from? Um, yes, of course, the Pankhurst family's got a radical tradition and so on. Uh, and of course, there's lots in front of her eyes, a lived experience where she can make these conclusions. But is she reading anybody? Is she reading? Marks is she becoming closer to any particular organisations or are these things that she's just figured out for herself well Sylvia always identified herself as a socialist um, and was active in the socialist movement she was particularly close to Keir Hardy um, they had a romantic relationship uh, and they also had a very long political relationship and, and friendship um, so they they discussed ideas all of the time and that's that's where she identifies herself um, she was a very eclectic reader she never particularly identified herself with um, one brand of socialism or if she did that didn't last very long um, but yeah she she read all, all different thinkers she read Marx she read Kropotkin she read William Morris um, and of course she's she's reading what what Keir Hardy is writing so what what does she do? I mean, so she's in this situation where Christabel is taking the organisation in, in her direction she absolutely opposes. What does she do? Does she leave the organisation? Does she form a, her own organisation? Does she work as an individual? What's next for Sylvia? It's really difficult for Sylvia. This is her mother and her older sister who are taking these decisions. And so this is a very painful and very personal dispute between them. And for years, she keeps her disagreements private. And she tries to say, stay in some way separate from the organisation. She tries to stay off the payroll of the organisation, unlike her mother and her older sister, so she can maintain her independence as a journalist and as an artist. And she tries to pursue those professions um, and live 
independently of them. Of course, her relationship with Keir Hardy is in complete defiance of their policy of separating themselves from all what they described as men's political parties and, of course, their hostility towards socialism and the Labour Party itself. And she works as a rank-and-file suffragette, so she she's active in that struggle, she goes to prison in the course of that struggle, but she also tries to ensure that that struggle can take up other campaigns. So when she comes out of prison, she she wants to talk about prison reform, which isn't particularly popular with her her older sister. And in fact, the, the Penal Reform Union, which will later become part of the Howard League, is formed on her welcome breakfast out of prison. Mm. So she's somebody who always wants to take up wider issues. And she tries to do that for so long within the confines of the WSPU. And she tries to contribute personally as an individual to that. She was an artist. They used to hold lots of big exhibitions to tell people about the suffragettes. And Sylvia decorated a lot of those big kind of wall canvases that she would paint with kind of inspiring images on them. And she also designed lots of merchandise for the campaign. Uh, which could be sold and which could raise money. And, of course, she designed the little portcullis brooch that they had with a big arrow on it. You were stamped, uh, your clothes were all stamped with an arrow uh, when you were in prison and had to wear prison uniform. She made those for women prisoners as a kind of badge of honour, literally, when they came, came out of prison. So tell me the story of how she was sent to prison. The first time she's sent to prison, um, she is protesting about the way other women have been sent to prison, um, including her younger sister, Adela. Uh, What happens is um, a whole pile of suffragettes are um, hauled up before the judge. And um, very often, these were overtly political trials. Um, It was very obvious that the judges hated these women uh, and were very supportive of the government and were very happy to repress these women and pass these kinds of sentences. Um, for example, um, they they refused to very often treat them as political prisoners, uh, which is which is how men who took that kind of action would have been treated. So um, these women were hauled up in front of the judge and they were denied the right to have any witnesses speak in their defence. Um, So this is a flagrant abuse of justice and Sylvia stormed into the court afterwards to say there were all these witnesses here and you didn't listen to them and then he sent her to prison as well. So this was her first imprisonment. Um, Her second imprisonment happens as a result of a demonstration outside Parliament uh, where where she's attacked by the police um, and treated quite brutally and then ends up in Holloway Prison. And this will be somewhere that she ends up on many, many occasions in the course of the campaign. Talk to us about some of her writing then. I mean, what does she say to us? Um, you know, you've talked about where she stands on certain issues and her, and her kind of position in relation to other strains of the movement and uh, who she knows and, and so on. Uh, when she's writing, both as an independent and, and as part of the organisation, what, what, what's she saying that's, that stands out? What's the, what's the difference that makes Sylvia somebody so special? In the course of the campaign, she pursues some quite interesting writing projects. In particular, in the summer of 1907, she goes off on on this journey on her own, north from her, her home in London, and she stays in different towns and cities and she tries to combine her writing and her work as an artist. And what she does is she observes working class women 
at work and speaks to them about their lives and writes journalistic pieces about this and tries to record what their working lives are like, both in descriptions of that work and also painting them um, in in the act of, of working in. Um, I mean, she works in, she goes to so many different places. She goes to coal mines, she goes to cotton factories, um, she goes to potato picking fields. And what she what she's really interested in is um, very empirical detail in her writing. She's really interested in how many hours those women work and what they're paid. And what she does is always to contrast that with how many hours the men are working and what they're paid. And what I think she's trying to do here is to point out there is a link between fighting for working class emancipation and fighting for women's emancipation. And what she's showing is that working class women bear a double burden. They are exploited as part of the working class, but that exploitation is exacerbated and intensified by the fact that they are women and by the fact that their employers realise they can pay them less. And so this is her pointing out the commonalities of the women's struggle and working class struggle, but saying that both of those aspects of the struggle have to be recognised, that any working class struggle that doesn't take account of how women are treated differently is going to be one that can't speak to them and can't help them achieve emancipation. And any women's movement that ignores the question of class and ignores the experience of working class women and what they have to go through and their particular experience of exploitation is not going to achieve any kind of emancipation for them. And so you see here her emerging critique um, of what her older sister is doing, which will of course have very serious ramifications and will have practical ramifications when she makes that break from them. So, what happens in 1912? Sylvia Pankhurst starts to take practical action to change the political direction of the WSPU. And all of those criticisms that she's held privately then take on a practical shape. And what she does is she goes to East London to try and create a women's suffrage movement there. And she chooses East London because um, it's one of the poorest parts of London, uh, but also crucially within marching distance of the House of Commons. And what she does is therefore try to link up the women's movement with local working class people and try to link this political demand with the social and economic changes that they want to see. She's very successful in doing this. She creates a, a number of branches um, of the WSPU in that area of London and she's really trying to shift that towards uh, more cooperation with local trade unions, with the local Labour Party um, and trying to bring that whole community involved. She says afterwards that her intention was to create a mass movement from which only a minority would stand aside. Whereas what's happening in the WSPU as a whole nationally is for that to be a minority campaign from which the majority of people um, are not involved. She wants to really reverse that process and turn votes for women into a mass movement um, that will force the government uh, to accede that demand. So that seems to me very different what she's doing in East London to what's happening with the rest of the WSPU. Um, how does this sit with the leadership and with uh, Christabel and her mother and so on? Yeah, this is very much opposed by her mother and older sister. Uh, they don't like the direction of this political campaign and particularly they're outraged when 
Sylvia Pankhurst shares a platform with James Connolly, who is supporting working class struggle in Ireland. And it's after a report in the Labour movement press that says the, the every day the Labour and the suffrage rebels are marching closer together, that Sylvia is summoned to go and see her older sister. Her older sister had fled to Paris, so was in exile, and that's where Sylvia is summoned to. And she is told that she and her organisation are expelled from the Women's Social and Political Union. How does Sylvia take that? Personally, it's, it's very painful for her, but she has a political project that she's absolutely determined to pursue, and so are the women that she's got engaged around her in this cause in East London. And so what they do is they set up their independent militant suffragette campaign in East London. They form the East London Federation of Suffragettes, um, and that will continue in the trajectory um, in, in which they've begun, very much trying to link up with, with working class women locally, with the trade unions, with all the kind of progressive people and forces in East London to t- transform this into a mass and popular campaign. This at last then, um, after a long period of uh, you know disagreement and difficult relations, this really is a proper split now. You've got the WSPU um, run by Christabel and others. Sylvia now in the East London Federation, separate organisation. But this is 1914, and as we know, the war happened. So what happens to this now split suffragette movement as war breaks out across Europe? When the war breaks out, you see the political differences between the organisations open up very, very sharply indeed. Um, So on the one hand, the leadership of the Women's Social and Political Union, led by Christabel and Emmeline Pankhurst, and the constitutionalist suffragist organisation, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, led by Millicent Fawcett. They, both those organisations, or the leadership of those organisations, suspend their campaigning for women's political emancipation. At the moment when they could have put most pressure on their government, what they decided was their priority would be to back the British state. Sylvia Pankhurst's approach is very different. She insists they need to carry on campaigning But the nature of that campaigning has to change in the course of the war. Um, As soon as industry restructures for war, what you get is people in working class and poor areas like East London um, suffering a great deal as they lose their jobs initially. Um, And these are people who don't have savings, they don't have any other money. Um, So what Sylvia and her group of suffragettes decide to do is set up welfare schemes so the community can support themselves and they're very deliberately not charity um, measures but they are measures that are organised by the women themselves um, so they they can support each other and these are things like um, mother and baby clinics they they set up their own toy making factory um, so that they've got jobs a factory actually where they insist the women should be paid the same as a man's skilled wage. Um, so there's a real insistence in equality there. Um, they set up nurseries and creches. They set up price cost restaurants so that people can afford to eat. Um, so that really becomes the the focus of their efforts and campaigning in this period. It, it's making me think of the Black Panthers with the breakfast mm-hmm. programme. You, But in many other ways... Um, most of the militant uh, campaigning around women's suffrage is just drawn to a halt. And and have many of the other organisations, other than Sylvia's, have they kind of shut up shop for the duration as well? 
That's right, mostly. I mean, this isn't universally popular with all the militant suffragette activists by any means. Some of them really oppose this. Um, and some of those come to work with Sylvia. Um, but of course, even those that want to be militant, I mean, you're right, m- militant suffragism is, is finished by the First World War. Those that want to take militant action... And are, that's that's things like hunger strikes yeah. and so on. That's not happening anymore. Yeah, so the, the prisoners are released by the government, which tells you how much the British government uh, didn't want that suffrage struggle during the First World War. They released those prisoners um, and and those organisations said, yeah, we're, we won't be engaging in militant action. They weren't arrested. They weren't sent to prison. They didn't go on hunger strike. So the war goes on, grinds on um, for four years. But of course, um, another thing happens, which is the Russian Revolution of 1917. I mean, that must have a huge impact on the politics of people like Sylvia Pankhurst, but also on the, the women's suffrage movement as a whole. I mean, how does that fit in? Yeah, absolutely. Sylvia Pankhurst is completely inspired by the Russian Revolution. And what the Russian Revolution proves for her is that working class people have to stop this war themselves, that the politicians are never going to stop it, but also the possibility with the Bolshevik revolution later on in 1917 of a much more radical direct democracy that can represent working class people. Um, And so she's very inspired by the creation of Soviets in workplaces, in soldiers' battalions, where working class people can withdraw their representatives if they start to misrepresent them. And she's very inspired by this. This is the kind of democracy from below that she's been really striving afterwards uh, after. And she sees this take a, a physical expression. Um, so this is something that she very much wants to see happen in Britain. Um, and the whole experience of the war and a government prosecuting that war in the way that they did and happy to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of working class lives um, for their own gain convinces her that this is a rotten system and that this needs to be replaced with a system where working class people themselves are in control um, of their lives and the the political direction of their lives. So she wants to see a revolution created in Britain. The war ends. What happens next? Well, women are granted the right to vote in 1918. Uh, That's a partial suffrage measure. It doesn't give the vote to all women. Um, It gives the vote to women over the age of 30, when men had it at the age of 21, and women who met a particular property qualification as well. Uh, So it wasn't by any means all women, but this was a concession that the government gave at a time um, of popular uprisings and revolutions. The First World War was brought to an end by strikes and mutinies and revolutions all the way across Europe. And there were strikes and mutinies in the British Army and Navy. And this is an establishment that's very frightened, um, very concerned about its own um, preservation. And they realised that for that preservation, they're going to need to make some reforms. They're going to need to grant some concessions. Um, And one of those concessions is going to be women's suffrage, although, of course, it's it's a partial measure and it's probably done to exclude younger women who they thought were going to be more radical, uh, more attracted to those revolutionary ideas. There's then another 10 years before full women's suffrage is won in 1928. Take us through Pankhurst's contribution in the next 10 years 
that takes us from that sop, that fudge, that kind of bribe of partial women's suffrage to full women's suffrage. Well, by this period, um, Sylvia Pankhurst has become very disillusioned in Parliament um, and in the possibility of achieving socialism through parliamentary reform. In that sense, um, she's very much like the Bolsheviks, um, but they differ over their tactics and how to apply those. So she identifies herself as a revolutionary communist and she does a huge amount um, to stop the intervention of the British government against the Russian Revolution. Um, So she's one of the people who um, campaigns to stop the dockers loading munitions that will go and and, uh, be used in Russia, achieving a big victory in 1920 with the Jolly George. but she, she also disagrees with Lenin um, over how to campaign as a revolutionary socialist. And this is a, a big debate that they have um, in the early 1920s. And are they talking to each other? Yeah, um, they are. Initially through publications that they share. Um, there's back and forth with, with different articles um, right at the end of the First World War. Um, and then Lenin invites Sylvia Pankhurst to Russia to have the debate. Um, so she's very highly regarded. Um, and and he wanted to have that debate publicly with her. Um, and she had a lot of respect for Lenin in this period. Um, And so they did have this debate um, and the debate essentially was over whether revolutionaries in a country where um, there wasn't a revolutionary situation should be working with people in organisations that did believe socialism could come through reforms, in particular the Labour Party. Um, And Lenin was arguing that Pankhurst absolutely had to relate to those organisations and where most working class people were um, to have the debate um, and to win them over to revolutionary socialism. Pankhurst's position is much more separatist and she's saying that she she doesn't want anything to do with the Labour Party. And that must have been highly unpopular with people she was already unpopular with back home. I mean, what's the response to her trip to Russia and her kind of increasing engagement with communism from people who she would have worked with certainly before the war anyway? Yeah, there's a section of suffragettes who were really inspired by Russia. Um, They're very much inspired by uh, the democratic changes there and the progressive changes for women um, and their lives. But there, of course, is a a section of the suffrage movement particularly that that has become much more reactionary um, that is resolutely opposed to Bolshevism and in the absolute forefront of that is her own mother Um, her mother toured Russia Emmeline Pankhurst um, toured Russia in the summer of 1917 to try and stop the Bolshevik revolution um, and obviously failed Uh, and she so in between February Mm -hmm. this is where summer usually falls but just so we're clear in between February and the Bolshevik uh, revolution of October Mm. Emmeline Pankhurst goes to Russia to argue against a further social revolution yep to argue against a further social revolution and to argue that Russia must stay in the war at huge cost and she sets herself up after the First World War as an anti-Bolshevik lecturer so that is that's a a huge breach in in the Pankhurst family an irresolvable breach so in a sense I'm getting the impression because I was asking how she 
played a part in the reform of 1928. In a sense, you're saying not very much. She's done with parliamentary politics and she's involved with these kind of causes. There must still be an ongoing campaign. Tell us if you can, just just finish the story of women's suffrage for us. There continues to be a campaign. It's much more understated. It, it doesn't replicate the militant suffragism um, of the pre-war era. But of course, the 1920s is a period of huge class conflict. Um, it includes the general strike in 1926. And I think, again, 1928 follows that in the sense that you've got a government, again, that's very nervous. Again, you've got a frightened mm. establishment who are thinking... That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's it's just in the same way 18 comes after Russia in 1917. 1928 comes after the general strike. Mm. So it's... And I think what's so interesting, especially with you got, you know, guffawing um, MPs, you know, laughing at women, the, the possible idea of women's rights and so on and so on. Actually, that conceals, of course, a great amount of fear and trepidation about the power of women and particularly working women mm-hmm. in British society. Every every move they're they're worried and and when they realize they're not going to be able to keep control of it they have to they have to give these concessions as you put it um so okay we've spoken a long time about sylvia um let's and she lives for a a lot longer she's you know an incredible woman and we could do another we could do another podcast about the rest of her life and and maybe we should but let's just wrap up then she dies in 1960 you said give us a brief overview of the rest of her days i think i have to start a little bit earlier in the in the 1920s because um she wasn't really involved as as we've said in in the 1928 reform act but it's it's not the end of what will be a lifetime of political activism. Um, her directions will be elsewhere. And consistent throughout that will be anti-imperialism and anti-racism. Um, as a newspaper editor, she was the first newspaper editor in this country to employ a black journalist, um, Claude Mackay. And she was one of the very first people in this country to identify and really start campaigning over the dangers of the rise of fascism. Um, she fell in love with an Italian revolutionary um, called Silvio Corio and he was in touch with lots of Italians and of course following the situation in Italy very closely and with the rise of Benito Mussolini you get on the one hand the British government um, including Winston Churchill very much praising Mussolini for attacking the left and you get Silvio realising that fascism poses an existential threat to everything she's fought for for the whole of her life. Um, She realises that fascism is going to um, try and destroy every working class organisation, that it is going to be devastating in terms of women's rights, that it is going to um, attack and try to annihilate um, whole groups of ethnic minorities, of course, in Germany, um, the the Jewish population. And so she's somebody who becomes very involved in fighting against fascism uh, in the 1920s. And it will be fascist Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, really with the collusion of um, Britain and France, that will give her the last really big cause of her life, which was campaigning for independence of Ethiopia. Um, Again, as a newspaper editor, she was incredibly and very bravely um, getting reports out of Ethiopia to contradict 
what the fascists were saying about that invasion. They presented it as a so-called civilizing mission. Um, and of course, imperialist governments around the world had no problem with this. So what Sylvia does is to expose the level of fascist atrocities in that country, um, to expose them bombing the Red Cross stations, to expose um, the levels of violence and rape involved in the invasion of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And she reports on this consistently throughout the 1930s and becomes one of the foremost campaigners on this issue and her newspaper and her reports about that and about what's happening in Africa um, really is shining a light on an area of fascist violence that um, many people hadn't been focused on so she doesn't allow the attention to be taken away from that but also her newspaper and her agitation on this provides inspiration to anti-imperialist campaigners, um, very many against uh, the British government um, around the world. And her newspaper is banned by the British government in, in colonies um, who are very, you know, the, the government were very afraid that she was providing inspiration to them. Uh, and indeed she was, we know that, that she was. Um, and she becomes involved with the leading pan-Africanists in that era. When the when the fascist invasion was was eventually defeated, um, when the fascists left Italy, she was invited by um, the Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie to come and live in Ethiopia, and that was something that she wouldn't do while there was still a threat of British imperialism hanging over the country. She didn't want to be there uh, in any way complicit with that. Um, um, when it was clear that Ethiopia was going to be independent, she moved out there and she spent the last years of her life living in Ethiopia um, and trying to help with the rebuilding of the of the country um, after that very, very devastating occupation, um, fundraising for hospitals and things like that. And she was able to have a level of political influence that she would never have been allowed by the British state. Mm. It's an amazing life from Manchester to Ethiopia um, via Russia and the East End and, and all sorts. Uh, she's a fantastic and inspiring woman. Give me the one political lesson that her campaigns across any of her life teach us today uh, about how we organise and about how we change the world. I think it's got to be drawn from the suffragette movement where she makes her biggest and most profound impact and that is to insist that our struggles must link up and that we are stronger as a collective and that that means um, that our movements for change have to be based in um, and led by working class people. We have to mobilise our power together as working class people and that we must never accept the divisions that the ruling class would seek to impose upon us, um, to divide us by sex or by nation or by race. And she fought all of her life to beat down those divisions and to construct those links so that collectively we can be stronger and achieve change together. You did a better job of that than I possibly could have imagined or, or certainly have done myself. That's uh, a very inspiring uh, and moving, actually, indeed. Sylvia Pankhurst, uh, Suffragette Socialist, Scourge of the Empire, uh, written by Catherine Connolly, is a fantastic book. Please get yourself a copy, which you can do from the Counterfire website. Uh, thank you so much, Kate, for talking to us for so long. I think it's worth having uh, a long, very long discussion 
on on such a fantastic woman. Um, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. 